So welcome to the From There to Here podcast. Uh, I'm Michael Stone. In this podcast, we ask people to talk us through their journey to where they now are in life, the challenges, the triumphs, the lessons and the influences. We don't intend the podcast to be heavy, but we do want to offer hope and encouragement to people facing mental health challenges, to say that you're not alone, to urge you to reach out to your friends, to the many organisations offering help, and to say that happier times can lie ahead. More of that later. My guest today is Tom Robinson, who came to public attention with a bang in 1977 at the height of the punk movement, when the irresistibly sing-along 2468 motorway hit the charts. Over the next two years, the Tom Robinson band produced some of the best and some of the most overtly political music of the time. The TRB had a reputation for close interaction with their fans. Their bulletins, letters and dialogue with fans were so important to many of us. The mixed up and unhappy teenage me loved receiving these bulletins and read them over and over. I used to put them back in the envelope and take them out again. Life got a lot better, which is the kind of the point of these podcasts. But that 15-year-old me is still in there somewhere. And that 15-year-old me can barely believe that I'm now about to say, uh, welcome, Tom Robinson. Thank you, Michael. That's some preamble. <laughs> You're too kind. Yeah, not at all. I mean, every word. Uh, okay, so as you know, we're taking people through their life journey. So tell us, if you will, about Tom Robinson, the boy. Well, the thing about childhood is you never have anything else to compare it to, so you never know whether it's normal or not normal. I thought it was a perfectly normal childhood, but perhaps it wasn't. I grew up in rural Cambridgeshire, Huntingdonshire, Essex, that corner of the world, uh, until I was 16. I sang in the local church choir, and uh, there wasn't that much popular music around our house, apart from my brother bringing home rock and roll records. Musically, um, pop music was a salvation for me to escape from my home background. Uh, socially, I didn't realise I was kind of isolated and awkward um, until much later, kind of looking back on it and thinking, oh, perhaps I was a bit antisocial at the time so uh, yeah as as my teens developed i became more kind of isolated and inward looking and um was heading for a nervous breakdown without knowing it i think are you able to tell us a little bit about what the causes of that were and and uh, what the issues were as a small child i used to be kind of very intently occupied by the games i was playing but usually on my own with uh, my own toys and and what have you that was fine until uh, puberty hit and uh, I fell kind of obsessively uh, in love with another boy at school. The thing about growing up gay, particularly in the 60s, was that you were warned about homosexuals and watching out for them and be wearing of them and how awful they were uh, before you realised you were one. And it... <laughs> We are the people uh, our parents warned us against. It was one of the popular slogans of gay liberation in the 70s. Yes, yes, indeed. So uh, when when I started to find myself, um, you know, emotionally as well as physically attracted to other boys, there was a big disjunct between how I felt inside and uh, the life I was living outside. So the internal and external selves kind of diverged radically. And I think when that happens, that's never a healthy thing. Often doesn't have a happy outcome. Of course, 
people, some people listening may not appreciate that the time you're talking about, actually homosexuality would have still been illegal. It would have been a, a, a you know, a crime against the law to, uh, to have a homosexual relationship. Tell us a little bit about that and, and, and how that, how that must have felt. Well, yes, it was a criminal activity, male homosexuality. That didn't actually impact on my kind of 15, 16 year old self insofar as I wasn't having any gay sex of, sure. uh, sure. of any description, legal or otherwise. Um, but it did have this effect that nobody could afford to be out yes. at the time. So there were no role models. You had no idea that there were other people who were attracted to the same sex living in your universe. I thought I was the only queer kid, not only in my school, but in the whole town, probably the whole of it, if not the whole world, you know, I didn't think there were any other queer 16 year olds around. Were you able to share with anyone the concerns that you uh, were feeling, the, the passion that you felt? Well, you know, I, I went to see the doctor first of all you know because at that time homosexuality was either criminalized or turned into a sin or medicalized yes. so you think well you know something either i'm ill or i'm a sinner or i'm a criminal so i thought i'd better go and see a, the local gp who just said you know that's ridiculous it's perfectly normal teenage boys to have a phase of homosexuality early in their teens you know you'll grow out of it and I confessed to my dad and he said oh yes same thing by the time you're 21 you'll be fine which for a 14 year old uh, being told that half a lifetime away yes. uh, everything will be okay isn't much consolation Absolutely. so I was as I say obsessively stalkerishly in love with this other boy i never t said anything to him about it and um, kept diaries of you know every time i met him and uh, passed him in the corridor at school it, was it love from afar as it were this wasn't a, a totally love totally love from afar yeah there was no actual relationship involved there but you know i didn't have many relationships with uh, other friends anyway generally so i was a fairly sort of solitary isolated individual why was that tom is, is that um related in some way to the, the concerns about uh, gay feelings or or other other reasons that that was the case i think everybody has a different disposition some people are naturally gregarious some people are good at uh, performing gregariousness yes and and uh, i became adept at doing that you know being life and soul of the party showing off and particularly learning to play the guitar was a way of kind of uh, getting attention or validating oneself in a group of people but I tended not to have close uh, intimate I don't mean sexually intimate I mean just really close intimate friends who the one the kind of people you can tell everything to did you have a difficult relationship with your father my father I imagine he had his own emotional difficulties, you know. I don't think he was really great in a social situation either. And uh, he was a driven, successful man. Because he was so driven, he never thought of himself as successful. Nothing he achieved was ever good enough. 
and also nothing any of his children achieved was ever good enough. He had the view that life is tough and and it'll eat you alive if you don't eat it alive and you've got to kind of be striving all the time and you can't just kind of rest on your laurels or backslide or take it easy so if you if your inactivity was kind of anathema to him but constantly being told that you need to do better when i mean plainly you're a very bright guy i suspect you were doing well by most people's standards that's a double-edged sword being regarded as a bright guy by other people because then people set a higher standard for you uh, than you can deliver you know so a a boy of your intelligence ought to do better than this you know it's it's the kind of constant refrain so um yeah that that didn't really help to be honest and your mom's role in this was she uh, different or well my mother was an orphan my mother didn't have much experience of what family life be like and particularly of having a man around in the house and um she didn't know what to expect any more than the rest of us did so um i think she found it quite a strain bringing up a family so socially uh, um i think both of my parents managed to perform okay but i don't think it was natural to either of them and i don't think any of us children found it uh easy sure you, you mentioned having had a, a nervous breakdown. Um, as somebody who had a breakdown at a similar age, I know it takes many different forms. How did it show itself with you? For me, it was, um, I just started boarding at the school I'd been at all through my teens. I was a day scholar at a Quaker boarding school in Saffron Walden. And when the family moved away from Saffron Walden and I moved up to the sixth form, I then became a boarder at that school so that I could continue my studies. And um, in that additional pressure of A-level Latin, A-level German, A-level French, and this kind of unhealthy, obsessive kind of... um, romantic obsession i just kind of got more and more depressed and more and more uh desperate and in the end i collected together some pills and tried to take an overdose well i did take an overdose as i thought uh went to went to bed in the dorm hoping never to wake up again in the morning and then when i did next morning (laughs) and i realized i was so crap i couldn't even kill myself sounds flippant to put it that way but that's how it actually registers with you at the time. Yes. Uh, it took about two two seconds opening my eyes to realise I shouldn't have been able to open my eyes and realise that I, even making the big attempt, I'd failed. And uh, it was like something had snapped inside me. Suddenly, everything was too much trouble. It took forever to put my socks on that morning. Everybody else is leaping out of bed, dashing down to the showers, going to breakfast. And I'm still trying to get my clothes on and put one foot in front of the other and weeping copiously. And, um, yeah, all I can say is it felt like uh, there was some kind of internal string that had snapped the thing that was holding me together. And the staff at the school very soon noticed it. Headmaster called me in and said, you know, we can't have you in this kind of state. What if you tried to kill yourself? And I said, told him, well, I just did. And uh, that was that. I was carted off to uh, a mental institution in Cambridge, the uh, 
the psychiatric wing of Addenbrooke's Hospital. Say so these things were medicalized in those days, and so um, I was shown into a, a hospital room and told to put my pajamas on and get into bed because I was ill. Yes, so yes. that's what you do when someone's ill, and uh, I was given drugs for people who are mentally ill. Then a series of ludicrous interviews with a psychiatrist which included ink block tests, you know, what does this look like to you? And yes. questions like, when you close your eyes at night, when you're going to sleep, what do you see? Um, what makes you think you're a homosexual? That was a good one. <laughs> um, I, said, I said, well, I, I'm in love with this other boy and I find boys sexually attractive. And this bloke said, uh, but have you actually had sex with them? I said, good God, no. He said, well, you're not a homosexual then, because a homosexual is somebody who has sex with members of the same sex, and you don't, so you're not one. You know, how helpful is that to a desperate 16-year-old? You know, this this has all been building up for two years now. That was pretty bloody miserable and um, didn't really help anything. And <laughs> the, the pop music of the day didn't help either. That, the winter of... 1966, we had What Becomes of the Broken Hearted by Jimmy Bloody Ruffin. Oh, yes, up. of course. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and the kinks didn't help either with Dead End Street. You know, yes, yes. It was, it was kind of, but maybe it's it's a perceptive thing that when you're in a certain frame of mind, then everything that you hear gets kind of pulled in and you spot the things that match your frame of mind and you ignore the things that don't. Because within a couple of weeks, we also had uh, Cream with I Feel Free. Yes, and that is. was much more reflective, much more genuinely predictive omen of what was going to happen in my life uh, in the coming 12 months. And so, um, yeah, things I, did I, gradually I, improve. Yeah, which is fantastic, and and thank you for sharing that. There is a there is a great series on YouTube um, under the banner "It Gets Better," yes. where they get sort of famous LGBT people to uh, to make a a video for younger people and say, "Look, it it gets better." Yes, yes. <laughs> so uh, I definitely echo does. that. Absolutely, it does. Okay, so so you you did the, it then go to a therapeutic community, um, which we'll, we'll ask a little about, if we, if we may. What happened was um, the school allowed me to go back conditionally on the condition that I went to see a psychiatrist in Cambridge twice a week, in addition to continuing my studies, which was really very charitable of this headmaster to, uh, to trust me enough to, to do that. Yes. But he also had a suggestion for my father about something that he could try, a, a place that he could try applying at. And um, he did. And one morning, I was uh, told to meet my dad outside the school at you know seven in the morning. And um, we did a day trip. And my dad drove me all the way down to Kent from Essex. And we drove through the Weald of Kent to Tenterden and ended up driving down this um, driveway into a Jacobean manor house, which had a big courtyard, sprawling kind of estate around it. It looked pretty battered and there were lots of kind of un unkempt, disheveled faces peering out through the window as we rolled up in the courtyard. 
And I thought, what on earth is this that we've been brought to? I was eventually ushered into an oak panelled study. And there was this man in his early 70s um, in a tweed jacket, slightly stooping with um, plastic rimmed glasses, shuffled towards me and took my hand in both of his when I went to shake his hand and held it for longer than was comfortable, to be honest, and uh, just looked into my eyes and um, said, sort of peering over his glasses, you're very lonely, aren't you? And, you know, after all the, the drugs I've been filled up with in Cambridge and the ink blots and the nonsense from the psychiatric establishment at the time, here was a man who just went absolutely straight yes. to the heart yes, of absolutely. what was going on. You know, it, it just the first sentence, first thing he said to me. Yeah. And I, I almost cried on the spot, you know, because it was so true, Somebody so self-evidently true. And I hadn't really realized. And this was an amazing bloody place. It was, it had quite extensive grounds around it. It had a rose garden and a pond and a, football field and um, a big hall attached, uh, three grand pianos scattered around the building. And everywhere there's these youths running around the place with sort of unshaven faces and long hair. I mean, unbelievably long for 1967. But it was all quite good natured is the, is the thing. It wasn't terrifying in terms of any sense of menace or threat. It was all quite human and actually quite fun yes. yeah and uh, after i'd been there for a few hours i was finally told to go back to the chief's study and see he was called george lie with this bloke and um i went for the, to say goodbye and he said well we haven't got any room here well really oversubscribed and there's a very very long waiting list so um we don't normally take boys as sick as you in any case but and then he just went do you want to come right yes and i just went yes yes, yes. you know it, yes. it was kind of like either jump or don't jump it was like i was something became clear i mean it was the most sensible decision i ever made yes in the first 30 years of my life um was to say yes because it was like saying yes to life i yes. could have just said well i'm not sure and he would have known that there'd, there'd just be too much work to do to sure. to help this sure. bloke so i would have just gone back to the boarding school and just slowly died a death you know and the the it would have stifled me. Whereas this was a, a chance at life in the raw. Just take some risks. Yes. Um, an adventure. See yes. what happens. Yes. A, a, a new vista had opened up for me. And uh, it was an extraordinary place. The There was no therapy other than daily life. There were um, four mealtimes a day. The boys did cooking for everybody else. who took it in turns to do all the cooking for a day. Uh, you, all the chores were done by the boys. It was just the friction of everyday life was the therapy. So were you able to form 
when I say form relationships, I mean friendships where where you uh, where you feel less isolated with other people there. It, did you come out of your shell a little bit, if I can describe it in that way? Totally. I, I made some of the best friendships of my life there yes. um, because we were all in the same boat. Yes. We all we'd all had a difficult past. Yes. And nobody really cared what you'd been through up to that point. It was just great to eventually be able to drop the facade yes. of trying to pretend to cope yes. and do that performing sociability. Anybody who tried to perform sociability got seen through very, very yes. quickly. Yes. What mattered was who you were in the here and now. Yes. And that was the essence of communal life. You know, so if you didn't do your washing up, nobody got to eat. Yes. So everybody's life was kind of intertwined with everybody else's life. And there were, let's see, about between 40 and 50 uh, young men between 14 and 15 and the early 20s yes. uh, living living there. It was there that you met Danny Custo, uh, who, uh, just in case anybody listening isn't aware, was the brilliant guitarist with the Tom Robinson band. Tell us about, uh, were you friends straight away, or, or how did that work? <laughs> well, I was 19 um, when Danny, 18 or 19 when Danny first arrived as a new boy and his arrival uh, being ushered into this kind of uh, mayhem of this uh, community that we had coincided with a visit from a famous old boy, Alexis Corner. Yes. And uh, that same day that Danny arrived, Alexis Corner came to visit with his wife and three kids. And Alexis gave a concert for the boys in Mr. Lywood's study. Uh, I don't know how we packed that many people into uh, one kind of domestic oak panel study, but there, there were at least 20 or 30 of us in there. And Alexis stepped into the middle of this circle and uh, strapped on a guitar and opened his mouth and sang and talked. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, whatever this is, I want to be one of them. Yeah. Um, it was very impressive. And Danny was sitting there with his mouth open. He... Uh, I was late teens, he was early teens, he was 14 at the time, and it made such an impression on him. He wanted to uh, learn to play guitar as well. And for the next few years, Danny pestered everybody who had any kind of skill on the guitar, whatever, um, to, to teach him another chord. He used to borrow guitars and pose with them with a headband around his head like Jimi Hendrix. And he was a, a bit of a clown too i mean that was his kind of social defense was to be able to make people laugh danny's guitar antics was a kind of bit of a standing joke around finchton and nobody took it terribly seriously and it was only some years later in 1976 that i was in london and putting a band together and danny called up and said i hear you're forming a band i want to be in it and Normally, I would have dismissed that out of hand because it was just you know, this ridiculously over-eager kid who could play C, F and G and enjoyed showing off. But luckily, this was the time of punk rock and it really didn't matter how well you could actually play. Uh, the main thing was that you were committed to what you did and that it was real and it was truthful, it was honest. And uh, 
you just stood up for yourself. That was the principle of punk rock. So I thought, well, you know, if Danny's keen to be part of it, then let's try him out. And he joined the band. It actually took one or two gigs before I even registered how good he was. He'd some suddenly become brilliant. Yes. And he was an absolute natural. He had such innate talent as a guitar player. Yes, you've, you've since said, I think, that uh, obviously... Danny, very sadly, is no longer with us, and uh, you've played with other musicians. And you said, I think, that uh, other guitarists who tried to recreate what he did have told you how great he was at doing it. The posing was was very much a part of, of him in TRB, wasn't it? He was with, with, with the cigarette uh, dangling and the... Uh, uh, he, was a, he was a great guitarist and a great a great poser, and I mean that as a, as a, as a positive. Yeah, he was a great showman. That's yes, he the, was. No question about it. And he had an extraordinary presence. Uh, he just had a, a physical stage presence that was magnetic. Yes. And he could communicate non-verbally with the audience. Yes. And in those early days with TRB, when we were an unknown band playing pubs, clubs, youth clubs, prisons, benefits, schools, whatever just to audiences who had no idea who we were or that we were ever going to be famous. Uh, we, there were some rough crowds in those days, particularly with the punk rock. Yes. Uh, skinheads used to show up and make trouble. Uh, punks themselves showed up and made trouble. So Danny being able to kind of troubleshoot the audience non-verbally from his side of the stage, make eye contact with members of the audience and kind of establish a rapport with them was amazing yes yeah. yes he, <laughs> he, he had a, a trick that he did once or twice which was like he'd smoke a cigarette while he was playing and then he could just flip the cigarette inside his mouth so it disappeared <laughs> a, lit, a lit cigarette and then put on a kind of doofus face going where's that gone and then but a broad grin and it would come out again they'd take another puff <laughs> for some kind of hard nut skinhead that could actually make them crease up and and uh, come on entirely on his side <laughs> tell us a little bit about the formation of, of the tom robinson band if you if you will some of the, the the work that you did was very very political most of your subsequent work is i think less overtly political did that reflect your mood at the time? Were you trying to create something that was punk-like to be part of that part of that scene, or how did that come about? I think you need an identity for pop music. It need, needs to have some kind of thrust to it. It needs to have a reason for existing. And um, those were desperate and dark times around the time of punk rock. You know, the National Front were on the rise. Yes. And as um, an LGBT man, I was aware of the threat of neo-fascist organisations yes. uh, to, to people like me. And Danny, uh, from a Jewish background, was very much aware of yes. the threat to his existence. So he was wholeheartedly in favour of Rock Against Racism, uh, which came up. And so forming a band from scratch um, with uh, songs that were grounded in my own uh, awakening in gay liberation certainly uh, 
gave us an initial direction but obviously rock against racism was formed around the same time as our band and uh, i signed up to that as soon as as soon as it came on the horizon with that first rock against racism letter to the melody maker and so um it seemed a natural direction and the thing is it was grounded when i first moved to london and found that i wasn't alone uh, in liking other men and that uh, there's a whole community out there i very much gravitated towards the um campaigning side of it because it seemed like that was a way that you could help other people yes. uh, so i volunteered at gay switchboards to to help answer the phone lines and uh, played at benefit concerts and stuff like that as a, as a solo artist on the side from the first first band I was in cafe society one of the tenets of gay liberation was that you can't campaign in isolation for one minority group yes unless you kind of allied to the broader struggle uh for justice <laughs> you know just no no justice no peace you know? yes you couldn't ask for male homosexuals and bisexuals to to live the lives they wanted to in freedom and and without being persecuted while believing that a woman's place was in the home and that uh, you know equal pay for equal work didn't count yes. or that people with a different skin color had different social rights sure i was trying to have a career in music no, course, no question course. you know same with danny you know we we of were course. both desperate to be pop stars um and uh, <laughs> while doing that you then have an audience and you can help some of the things you care about yes uh, while you're on your way absolutely uh, and for those who who, uh, who are not aware of rock against racism it was so important at the time as you say that the, the national front um yeah, the bnp would be the equivalent now uh was on the rise that uh and they just put on some bloody good shows didn't they i mean that's what it was uh that's what it was really but it was kind of people just having fun together and it was you know racism is, is stupid i mean that, that's that's it was as basic as that and and, and as and, and as important as that as effective as that yeah, eric clapton was actually responsible for the birth of rock against racism because um outrageously having made his living as a blues guitarist and then having had a massive hit with a Bob Marley reggae cover. Yes. He then went on stage in Birmingham at a concert in 1976 and uh, made a drunken rant about uh, too many foreigners, and he was unrepentant about it. A collective of people wrote to the melody maker and the enemy with a, a famous letter that's just basically said who shot the sheriff eric sure as hell wasn't you you know yes. you're, you're music's biggest colonialist and so they signed off rock against racism as a as a slogan and that letter caught people's imagination in such a big way that loads of people wrote into them and said uh, you know what is this rock against racism where is it where how can we join it it was a grassroots movement that grew up from just local gigs and stuff yeah and um it, it seemed a natural thing to be part of yeah no, absolutely i i still have the badge somewhere uh they, they, they were they were it was tremendous 
Let's talk a little, if we can, about uh, Sing If You're Glad To Be Gay, which, which I, I say to you genuinely is, is, is one of the most important and, and, and powerful protest songs I think ever written. I, I hope you're very proud of it. You should be very proud of it. After leaving Finchton Manor at age 23 and moving to London and discovering gay liberation and all, all the rest of it, I formed a band called Cafe Society, which was an acoustic harmony trio. And we at least had enough success to attract the attention of Ray Davis of the Kinks, who signed us to his label and produced our first album. That didn't go anywhere much. Um, it was a good band, but I, I think we trusted the people who were running our record company too much and ourselves too little. So while Cafe Society was busy going nowhere in the company of the Kinks, on the side from that, I was getting involved personally in gay liberation politics and helping gay switchboard and uh, playing benefit concerts. And the interesting thing there was that I got more attention from the music press when I was doing solo things on the side from Cafe Society than Cafe Society itself did, sure. generally, because sure. all you could say about us there was this is a competent band who, who sing pleasant songs with really well-executed vocal harmonies, but there was no story to it, whereas this guy has written a song called Sing If You're Glad To Be Gay, uh, actually had column inches and you know, mileage in it as a story and as a headline. This pissed off the other guys in the band that Cafe Society was kind of getting perceived as a, a gay band because it was only one of the three members who was involved in it. Bless them, I mean, they, they supported me heartily as much as they could, but it wasn't their thing, it wasn't their struggle. Yes. So um, that's how come while I was doing this stuff on the side, I came to write that song, Sing If You're Glad To Be Gay, and performed it at a Pride concert at the end of a Pride march in 76. So the song existed, and when I started the modestly named Tom Robinson Band uh, <laughs> with, with Danny, and we went out, needed songs, I thought I would chuck Glad To Be Gay into the set list, just because having seen the, the Pistols, it was evident that uh, you needed to wear your heart on your sleeve and be uh, honest and truthful about where you were coming from. But you would have, you have had a, a Tom Robinson band audience of 3,000 singing along to Glad To Be Gay, many of whom presumably were not gay. That's very powerful. Yeah, well, we placed it carefully in the early days when we were just playing as an unknown band in pubs and clubs. Um, you'd have to kind of get the audience on side before you sprang that song on them. If you'd, if you'd walked out and started with that, that would have alienated a lot of the audience very quickly, I think, at that time. Yes. So we had to establish a kind of um, Danny's laddish credentials as a performer helped, and the songs about standing up for your rights, um, and you know, the, not all of the songs were uh, polemical. I think all the quote-unquote political songwriters I've admired, uh, from Billy Bragg to Stevie Wonder, have all uh, mixed up songs about life and love, the universe and everything, 
with the campaigning songs. I think an unremitting diet of it, you have to be extraordinarily good to pull that off. Even Nina Simone, bless her, you know, she was like ferocious uh, when when she really got polemical. But she also had my baby just cares for me. She was, you know, it was a full rounded picture that she gave. But in the same way that Public Enemy had a huge white following, and yes. white white youth of both sexes turning up to their shows uh, and really supporting them and getting into the message because you can relate to it. You don't have to belong to that particular minority to appreciate the justice of of what they're calling for. You know? So hopefully it was something of the same happened with TRB's audience and uh, Glad to be Gay was just be proud to be yourself yes. was the message that people took from it. And they were happy to sing along for that reason, I think. Fantastic. And uh, I said to you that uh, I had received your newsletters. and I remember receiving the one uh, saying that uh, TRB had been disbanded and feeling pretty crushed. Um, but, but, but from your point of view, uh, how did it end? Why did it end? Do you regret the fact that it ended, or, or had you, you know, done what you wanted to do with it, and uh, that was that? I think Danny did us all a favour, really, by um, walking out of the band in '79 uh, after just basically two and a half years together. He felt it wasn't tenable for him, and he realized sooner than me that it was it was over yeah it was over personally between us at the time you know that emotionally it was just so stressful being in a band with danny but also the times changed the you know the british music scene has always had a kind of set them up knock them down cycle which is almost unique to our country because it's so small yes and because we have national radio and national music papers it meant that there was constantly a, a hunger for something new to write about in the enemy in the melody maker and there was constantly an appetite for something new on radio one um so the turnover is very fast and even today, we, we still see that, uh, these firework careers where a band is the best thing since sliced bread one year and the next year it's last year's in thing. So the new favourite band syndrome, we were a new favourite band in 77. What we delivered in 78, we shot our bolts, really. I, we weren't able to follow it up with another batch of songs of the same quality. and. Uh, the music press soon tired of writing nice things about us and started writing nasty things about us. Uh, I mentioned earlier the uh, terrific interaction that you had with, with fans and all the letters and, and, and so on. Is it the case that you might have spent too much time doing that from the point of view of uh, developing other material or, or not? I think you've just put your finger on... Uh, exactly the point i mean this is a conclusion i've subsequently reached now with all these years behind me uh, in my early 70s and having seen music careers come and music careers go and music careers last i've seen enduring music careers and what makes them endure is great songs 
and Elvis Costello still has a flourishing music career because he continues to write gobsmacking songs. And that's Richard Thompson, same thing. He, he, he is an extraordinary songwriter, phenomenally pro prolific, and he's never lost the bite in his songs either. He's never gone smooth or comfortable. I now know that the most important thing is the material. It's, it's like location, 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 or education, education, education. It's basically songs, songs, and then more songs uh, for a music career. If you write really great songs, there will always be an audience for them. And if you stop writing really great songs, your audience will drop off. And uh, that was what happened with TRB. So maybe that I, happened with TRB, but but I say to you seriously, you, you still write great songs. The song that you play live uh, regularly uh, about your children is just beautiful. You are a great songwriter. Uh, maybe not uh, making the front pages of the enemy, even if it existed anymore, but uh, but you do still write great songs. Thank you for saying that. But I, the the truth is, um, I'm a slow songwriter, and it took me twenty years to write that last album in 2015. I'm not prolific by anybody's stretch of the imagination. And I think that's where Elvis has been so extraordinary, Elvis Costello, uh, is that he not only turns out great songs, but he turns them out in great profusion. So um, being prolific and writing the songs and putting the time in to write the songs, I now know is key. And so when I look back at um, TRB, I'd had all my career up to age 27, to write the songs on that first album sure and then i had four months to write the songs on the second album and what did i do with those four months i spent them answering letters to people like you <laughs> <laughs> thinking that yes. uh, that's what people wanted from us was that personal touch and that contact and you know you as you say you appreciated it at Absolutely. the time but i think you would probably have appreciated more songs of the quality of 2468 motorway and uh, gray cortina and power in the darkness You'd have liked those even more than getting a personal letter from us. And uh, it is the single stupidest thing that I did was keeping the faith with the fan base. It's no, it wasn't all that stupid because I've managed to keep a loyal audience all down the years and they still turn out 40, 50 years later yeah. to uh, to come and see my live shows. So bless them. That is that loyalty is a wonderful thing. But uh, yeah. I think probably I should have spent a lot more time writing songs than I did writing letters. The the other big thing that has changed uh, in your life, and perhaps would come as a surprise if we take ourselves back to 1978, uh, of course, is that you've been happily married for 30 years and have uh, two children. Some people say that in 1978, it was kind of felt, I think, that speaking of bisexuality was almost a cop-out. Tell us about how, whether that, was that have you always felt bisexual did meeting sue change things to i always found some women attractive along with finding a great many men attractive <laughs> so while it was technically true uh, in my teens and 20s to say that i was technically bisexual it was like one woman in a hundred versus you know, uh, every other man I saw. <laughs> um, so it didn't seem worth mentioning 
at a time when it was just a theoretical possibility, uh, particularly because bisexual is used so often as a cop-out um, when somebody, particularly back then, um, there was such stigma attracted to saying I'm homosexual or I'm gay that many actually gay men said, oh, actually I'm bisexual. It's what ba David Bowie said. Uh, it's what Elton John said in the 70s. And it didn't occur to me or to my generation of LGBT activists that it might actually be true that Elton John actually was bisexual. Sure. And that David Bowie definitely was bisexual. He had, for him, the, the proportions were reversed. I just didn't want to seem to be copping out by proclaiming myself as bisexual because our enemies didn't differentiate. Yes. A queer basher who's found you trying to pick up another man somewhere out in, in the town or exhibiting attraction to other men is not going to care whether you've got a wife or a girlfriend back at home Absolutely. or whether you also find, you know, that woman over there attractive. They don't differentiate. If you like other men, you're queer. That's it. Yeah. Kick your head in. Since they didn't differentiate, it seemed no point me differentiating at the time. And I kind of in common with my cohort of that generation of activists, we always thought that bisexual men were just those that hadn't come out properly. Yes, know? that was very much the view, wasn't it? It, it really was. And so um, I didn't really believe in it as a thing. I didn't know any genuinely bisexual men. And the only way we were kind of interested was if a man who was apparently straight would then go to bed with you if the time and the lights were right, you go, oh, well, you see, everybody's a bit bisexual. But we never liked it the other way around when yes. a man who was apparently yes. gay yes. would then go and have a bit of nookie on the side with a female partner. When it happened to me that I found myself actually seriously involved with and in love with a female partner, at a time when I was going out and singing, singing, if you're glad to be gay on stage every night, it was a seriously inconvenient moment. You know, it, <laughs> it was a very bad career move uh, because it kind of undermined the apparent credibility of what I'd been singing about. So I was keen to come out as bisexual and uh, to make that known. But when the tabloid press got hold of it, they took ownership of it. You know, yes. Shock, horror, man yes. lives with woman. Um, yes. The difficulty there was once the tabloids have got you in their sights, um, in that pre-internet age, there was no right of reply. There was no way of putting your viewpoint and your riposte to that or your side of the story out in the public domain. For a while, because this all happened at the time when AIDS was at its height, uh, it very much looked like a cop-out yes. to people, to anyone who didn't know me and my partner at the time uh, and didn't know her as an LGBT activist herself. Awesome. And um, it seemed like um, yeah, a betrayal. And 
I think if I had seen that happening, I would have thought it was a betrayal. And so um, I'm not surprised that it got that accusation got leveled at me. And it was only really when we'd got kind of into the 90s and uh, lesbian and gay pride had become lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender pride yeah. that suddenly the things broadened out and there was a home for me again. They had a bisexual stage at Pride in, I think, 94, 95, something like that. And I got invited back to Pride after having been booed off a few years earlier after the tabloid stories. I would probably have um, thought of it as a betrayal myself if I'd only gone by the tabloid stories. There was no way of putting my own side of the story because there was no social media at that time. And I had the experience of turning up to play Glad to be gay at Pride one year, as I had done for the previous ten years, and I was booed as I as I took to the stage because, yeah, people were people were dying. You know, our, our friends, our loved ones, our partners, yeah. our you know, our lovers were dying and dying horribly in the face of vile attacks in the tabloids. And when those same tabloids have been kind of running stories. Uh, about how I had gone straight, quote unquote. I can understand the anger that was there. So <laughs> the redemption came a few years later when uh, lesbian and gay pride became LGBT pride. And uh, there was a bisexual stage at Pride in 94 and 95. And they invited me to come back to Pride and play. And this is wonderful going, getting onto the stage with my acoustic guitar and this is ram this tent completely rammed with people. And uh, somebody shouted, where have you been, Tom? And I said, making babies, and they all cheered. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was like a homecoming. I think it's important to, to be out about, well, even though I don't feel terribly bisexual, you know, it's, it's still uh, quite a small number of women who uh, I, I happen to find attractive. I mean, I am bisexual, and there are a lot of us about, as you say, a great many LGBT men uh, are identifying as bisexual, and that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Thinking back to that young person and the person who, who went to Finchton Manor, and thinking back to the kind of pressures I think that you described from, uh, from your parents, what lessons did you learn from that that had that made you a different kind of parent? How how are you able to not pressurize your children in quite the way that perhaps you described having felt yourself? As a parent, whatever you do, it's going to be wrong. That's for sure. It you know, I'm sure that our children have experienced all kinds of difficulties because of our style of parenting. Uh, it's it's inevitably going to be wrong, and sure. you're going to cock it up. All you can do is do it with love, and and pray that you're forgiven. Really, um, and my dad, bless him, you know, I reconciled myself with my dad in my thirties. We ended up on pretty good terms. He said, you know. You should write a memoir sometime but tom he said this in a letter he said be merciful <laughs> and, that's uh, sweet. and uh yeah that's all i can hope from from my offspring you know 
is I hope they'll be merciful in the way they view us and the way that we brought them up. And uh, I hope their offspring will be merciful to them. It's it's the best you can hope for. Do it with a, a good heart and hope you're doing it with love. And um, you will get it wrong, inevitably, whatever you do. You're still out performing live. You still put on a fantastic show, which I which I uh, urge people to go and see. And you're you're a, a fixture on the radio. And, and uh, tell us a little bit about that, about your um, radio career, how you got into that, and and what you get out of it, what what uh, what you enjoy about it. My great idol and later mentor, Alexis Corner, trod the same path that he was uh, a singer, a songwriter, a performer somebody who got on the stage and sang songs for people, but he was also a broadcaster. And he did some wonderful radio shows for Radio One. He uh, had the most extraordinary speaking voice, didn't he, apart from anything else? The great thing about Alexis is his exactly. voice. Exactly. It was terribly, was terribly patrician. <laughs> As Mud used to say to me, you know, it would be Mud. <laughs> <laughs> muddy waters or lead was a great one for this <laughs> he had a great knowledge a great kindness a, a big heart and um i emulated him in every way i possibly could both in terms of his performing style his raconteur style his mentoring of upcoming artists he always made a point of that and i've tried to do that myself over the years yes. and his broadcasting where he shared his enthusiasm for different kinds of music with listeners and uh, that's just been a joy uh, i got so lucky that i was invited to be part of six music when it launched in 2002 yes and that i've been able to i've been privileged to um, share my musical tastes and enjoyments and enthusiasms with a wider audience and also hopefully help along the careers of people whose music I admire. So Tom, this has been great. Just in summary, thinking back to the 16-year-old uh, that we were speaking about, what would you say to that person now that would make him feel a bit better? I just say it gets better you, yes. to anybody that's going through the mill at the moment. You know, this isn't the permanent state of how things are always going to be. However bleak it looks, you really, really can't know the future. Uh, and it's worth hanging in there. Yeah. And yeah, it gets better. That, that is absolutely right and and more than anything else that's the the message that i hope we promote and 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 if if people are listening who are finding life tough please talk to your friends please talk to uh the samaritans who are there 24 hours a day 365 days a year they will not judge you they just want to help the campaign against living miserably is worthy of support and worthy of uh, making contact with uh, as Tom says, uh, it gets better. It really does. And so, yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. Hang in there. I'd like to thank anybody who's listened. Uh, I would like to thank the lovely Ben McGowan for the theme music. Uh, and most of all, I'd like to thank you, Tom Robinson. Michael, thank you very much for having me.